Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Although Christians tend to emphasize the monotheism of the Hebrew Bible from the earliest time up until the later period, It appears, according to scholars, that there was a development in Israel and the understanding of one God. In this podcast, we have a Jewish scholar who comes to discuss this development, and then we make application to consideration of how we should understand our own Christian faith better by looking more carefully at the sacred text. And then secondarily, when we make apologetic arguments or critiques of other religions that believe in more than one God, our arguments need to be more more nuanced and better defined. So we hope you enjoy this edition of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I'm the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged to have it today as my guest, Dr. Kenneth Seaskin. Did I pronounce that correct? Yes. Very good. I'll read a little bit of uh, his bio, and folks can look in the uh, description of the podcast for his complete bio and some other links. Dr. Seaskin is the Philip M. and Ethel Klutznik Professor Emeritus of Jewish Civilization. After receiving his PhD from Yale in 1972, he joined the faculty of Northwestern and has remained uh, there ever since. He served for nearly 20 years as chair of the philosophy department, and with the start of 2010 to 2011 academic year, he served as the chair of religious studies. He has won several teaching awards since coming to Northwestern and served as the Charles Deering McCormick Professor of Teaching Excellence from 1995 to 1998. He is best known for his interpretation and defense of the rationalist tradition in Jewish philosophy, including such figures as Maimonides, Spinoza, and Cohen. His most recent books include The Cambridge Companion to Maimonides, Maimonides on the Origin of the World, Autonomy in Jewish Philosophy, and Searching for a Distant God, The Legacy of Maimonides. Uh, And folks can, again, look to the uh, program notes for a further expansion. Is there anything you want to add to that, Dr. Cecil? Yeah, you could add, I have a big soft spot for Thomas Aquinas. Okay, (laughs) So uh, I even have a necktie. I didn't wear it with the writing of Thomas Aquinas on it. So um, Aquinas read Maimonides, we know that. And uh, I have to say, when I read Thomas uh, is one of the thinkers where bells go off. So uh, I haven't uh, published a book on him, but uh, he has a he has a pretty good place in my heart. Let's put it that way. Well, thank you for adding that. By by way of background uh, as to how we're why we're having this conversation, I am a regular reader of the Torah.com which is a great resource for folks if they want to see how Jewish scholars are are interacting with the Torah and and the Hebrew Bible and in all kinds of different ways. And there was an article that came up. uh, I'm not sure when you wrote it, but it came up in my email feed uh, titled, When Did the Bible Become Monotheistic? And it's a great read. And as I mentioned before we started recording, I often connect the dots between my ongoing attempts at understanding the Hebrew Bible, uh, Judaism, my own Christian faith, with the process of multi-faith engagement, multi-faith encounters. 
And I have seen, and I'll, I'll make some comments at the end, I've seen some Christian apologetic efforts at drawing upon the monotheism of the Bible and then making apologetic arguments and critiques against other religious traditions like the Latter-day Saints or Mormons. And in my view, many times that apologetic kind of misses the mark in terms of being better informed about the development of monotheism within the Hebrew Bible. So Dr. Seaskin will help us unpack that today uh, during our conversation. Um, I'm going to kind of follow the outline of, I'll put a link in the program notes to that article you wrote at the Torah.com, um, but I'm going to be following kind of that basic uh, structure of the article that you wrote there. And if I'm missing something, uh, you can certainly help me fill in the blanks here. Um, you begin in the article with a discussion of numerical monotheism and philosophical monotheism. Can you define these and how it relates to this discussion? Well, numerical monotheism uh, basically says there is only one uh, uh, deity. Uh, it's a numerical claim. Uh, and it takes, it's not altogether clear, by the way, when that develops in the Hebrew Bible. We can go into that uh, a little bit later in more detail. Uh, philosophical monotheism, though, is a little bit different. Uh, and that says that uh, God, uh, yes, there's only one, but that the one that there is is special, is in a class by him, her, itself. Uh, so uh, let, let me give you a, a, an example that I hope will clarify this point, okay? Let's suppose that someone, let's say in ancient Greece, take that as an example, and suppose somebody believed in the sole divinity ship of Athena, we'll make it a woman, okay? So this person believes that Athena is the only uh, uh, god there is, or goddess, if you will, and uh, she appears in human form, she wears uh, battle armor and human clothes, uh, she uh, talks to human beings, involves herself in the Trojan War, just the way uh, Homer describes it. Now here's the question, if you believed in the sole divinity ship of Athena, or anybody, Poseidon, Zeus, it doesn't matter. If you believe in the sole divinity ship of a pagan god or goddess, does that make you a monotheist? As Judaism, Christianity, or Islam understand the term. Another way to, to phrase this would be to say, uh, is there a distinction to be made between monotheism properly so-called and single deity paganism, which is what I've tried to describe. And uh, it seems to me there is that, 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 that true monotheism is more than a numerical claim. It's at least a numerical claim. I'm not I'd say it denies that. It's at least that. But there has to be more to it uh, to be genuinely monotheistic. And uh, what more to it is, uh, again, this God is uh, special. This God is not just a glorified human being. Uh, this God does not wear human clothes. Uh, this God is, uh, we need special categories uh, to describe this God. In fact, this God may even be ineffable. We'll have to see. Uh, but it's more than just arithmetic. 
uh, if you want a, a simple way to think of it, on the, uh, the arithmetical claim is there's only one. Uh, the philosophical claim is uniqueness, not just one, but in a special category, unlike anything else. Uh, and so I would say that to be a true monotheist, you have to assert both. And uh, we, if you go through the Hebrew Bible, they develop in different forms at different times. But it, it, it takes a while uh, for these two to come together uh, uh, so that we have monotheism as we now would come to understand it. I hope that's clear. Uh, if it's not, you're, you're, free to, <laughs> you're free to object. You're free to uh, follow up questions. Uh, if the president can take follow-up questions, so can I. So uh, shoot, go ahead. <laughs> no, that, that's very helpful. I just want to make sure re, uh, listeners and viewers understand. Uh, many times in the Protestant Christian tradition, you know, this idea that, well, I just go to the Bible. But even just with this first question, we're not just looking at the text. We're looking at the text through a number of lenses, including philosophy, philosophical theology. That's so that's correct. That, that's what we're doing, correct? Right. So, I mean, look, if you if it, let's take an example. If you look uh, at the Ten Commandments, uh, I am the Lord, uh, thy God, who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods uh, besides me. Now, question, does that mean there are other gods, but I don't want you to worship them? Okay. Uh, or does it mean uh, I am the only one? And uh, if I'm the only one, okay, we have numerical monotheism, but then we're told you can't make an image of this. Well, why can't you? Is it that you could make an image of God if God wanted you to do so? Uh, God has a human form. Or is it that God is not the sort of thing uh, that you can make an image of? Uh, uh, God has no... Uh, visible or tangible form, uh, the Hebrew Bible doesn't answer those questions, at least not, not originally when they occur in the book of Exodus. It leaves us guessing. It's not altogether clear that we have monotheism even uh, at Mount Sinai. It, it's not altogether clear that Moses was a monotheist in our sense of the term. So again, there's a, there's a development there. Now you you have re also referenced in the article, and you gave a, a mention of it in your first response to anthropomorphism in relation to God. Right. And, and here again, um, m many Christians will that they look to the immateriality of God, and they they have various explanations for the anthropomorphisms, their theophanies, and and metaphorical language, and this kind of a thing. But you reference uh, the work uh, of uh, Stephen Sommer in this regard. Now, hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly there. Um, th those really aren't good. Isn't there a development in the understanding of the nature of God in relation to anthropomorphism? Yeah, just as there is well, first of all, yeah, the Hebrew Bible is full of anthropomorphisms, uh, loaded with them. Uh, both Maimonides and Thomas Aquinas uh, realize that and say so. Uh, the question is whether we interpret them literally or whether we take them metaphorically to be making some other point. So let's take a few examples. Uh, the book of Genesis says Noah walked with God. All right. 
Does that mean Noah walked with God in the way that, say, you and I would uh, walk down the sidewalk to the store? Is that what it's trying to say? Or is it simply saying uh, Noah was beloved of God? Uh, Noah walked in God's ways in the sense of doing what God wanted. Well, uh, I would argue for the latter. Uh, I would argue that, sure, uh, this is uh, 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 a nice expression. Um, the uh, Bible, let's keep in mind, is a literary text. It isn't a, 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 th a textbook in theology. And so it uses metaphors, parables, descriptions, uh, all like that all the time. Uh, you've got to be careful with literal interpretation. Uh, uh, Moses, uh, did Moses see God face to face? Well, uh, uh, the, the book, uh, 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 the Hebrew Bible says, unlike any other prophet, Moses spoke with God face to face. Uh, now, what does that mean? Does it mean that he's two people face to face in the way that they're talking at Starbucks over a cup of coffee? Is that what it's trying to say? Or is face to face a metaphor, meaning that God's revelation to Moses was clearer than anyone else's? It didn't occur in a dream that when Moses received it, he was in full possession of his faculties. In other words, uh, it, it, what are we trying to say? Uh, when the book says that God saw something, did God see it with, with, with eyes the way you and I would? Or does it simply mean that God realized or knew something? Again, every time you see a, uh, a, an anthropomorphic description, uh, it's, it's, I would say it's always the case, if you think about it, it's trying to make a larger point about the sovereignty of God. It isn't necessarily saying that God uh, takes on human form. Now, qualification. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a long and complicated text. You got to be careful. Um, uh, Exodus twenty four says the elders of Israel did see God. Uh, 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 the prophet Isaiah, chapter six, says that he saw God. Uh, the prophet. Uh, Ezekiel says he saw God in human form riding on a chariot. Okay, uh, so uh, there are passages where uh, it's not completely clear that monotheism has developed yet. And there's some of the greatest prophets who ever lived. So I, I, I don't want to suggest everything is clean cut and it's straightforward from the beginning. So uh, you, you have passages where uh, people say they did see God. On the other hand, you have passages where God says, no, you didn't see me. And uh, you have passages that say, don't try to make an image of God. So uh, there isn't a single line of development. It takes a while for these various inconsistencies or uh, apparent inconsistencies to be resolved. That's a long-winded answer that I apologize for. No, 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 that's great. But, I think but we... the, the subject of anthropomorphism is, is in the Bible, is debated. There's still scholars uh, today um, who debate it, and uh, there are passages that 
do seem to suggest God either does or can take on human form. Uh, uh, those the, the, the passages, I think, are there. Uh, but I think in the long run, both Judaism and Christianity, Islam, the Abrahamic religions have moved beyond them. Okay. That's, no, that's very helpful. I, I don't expect you to give me a Reader's Digest uh, answer to, you know, these are very yeah. complex. Uh, For folks who still know a, what Reader's Digest is. Yeah, there is a, a book by Benjamin Summer, which is, I think, the book you referred to. Yes. And he said, look, uh, the uh, evidence for God having a physical form or a body in the Hebrew Bible is overwhelming. Well, uh, I uh, wrote a reply. Okay. <laughs> Um, in one sense, it is overwhelming. The question is uh, whether you want to insist on literal interpretation all the mm. time. And uh, I would say, no, uh, we don't have to. Uh, I mean, look, let's take another example. Suppose I said to Shakespeare, let's take Shakespeare as an example. Suppose I said, Will, get rid of all the metaphors, you know. Will, you've got to be completely literal in everything you say. Uh, uh, so don't, don't tell us the world is a stage. It's not literal. I mean, we want straight scientific literalism all the way through. Well, we wouldn't be reading him if, if that were the case. All great literary uh, 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 writers uh, use that met. They should use metaphors. The human mind thinks metaphorically, and uh, uh, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Uh, I'm, I'm not in no sense am I critic. Even science uses metaphors, for heaven's sake. Uh, so, just every time you see one of these passages, my only advice is slow down. Ask yourself what the passage is really trying to say. What is the context of the passage? What point is this passage trying to make? And does it absolutely require you to ascribe anthropomorphic features to God? That's that's my advice. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's again, that's very helpful. In regards to this question of a development of monotheism. Against the background of Israel within the ancient Near East, uh, it, I, I think many times there's a need to, to try and recognize the context of the ancient Near East so that Israel fits within that. And yet it's also at the same time trying to do something new over the course of its history. Can you talk to how this the development of the belief in one God among many is a facet that fits within the context, but yet Israel comes to understand through its experience that there's something different and unique about Yahweh? Well, okay. Uh, the, the usual way to look at monotheism uh, is to say that Abraham was the first monotheist, okay? Um, and we refer to the Abrahamic uh, faith, the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Bible doesn't tell us a thing about what Abraham believed about God. We know he was loyal to God. I'm, I'm not denying that for a second. Did he believe that his God was the only one? Or did he believe that his God was the most powerful among, let's say, a whole pantheon of gods? Uh, we don't know. No, nobody knows. Nobody, because we're not told. 
Uh, there are legends that have sprung up about Abraham, but the, the actual text doesn't uh, tell us. Um, when the uh, Israelites uh, are saved at the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea, the Israelites cross on dry land, the Egyptian army uh, uh, comes and is drowned, and there's this race called the Song of the Sea, a uh, great song uh, uh, of triumph and jubilation. And uh, there is a little um, a passage in there uh, that became a canonical prayer in Judaism. If you were to interpret this literally, it says, who is like you among the gods, plural. Who is like you among the gods? Well, now, wait a minute. That suggests that the God who rescued them at the Red Sea is one, the most powerful, the most exalted, the one to whom they owe the greatest loyalty. Uh, but that doesn't, not only does it not deny the existence of other gods, it would seem to assert it. Okay? So it takes uh, a, a while uh, uh uh, to uh, for Israel to sort of come to grips with uh, how special this is. And uh, I would argue uh, that the first true monotheist uh, is a second Isaiah, the prophet. Now, uh, footnote, three people, three different people wrote under the name Isaiah. Uh and this was quite common in the in in the ancient world. The people would write under the name of their master or the leader of their school or sect or whatever. Quite common. Truth to tell, we don't know the real name that Second Isaiah had. So the first monotheist is in some sense nameless. Okay, but he makes two claims. The first claim is. I am the first, I am the last, and besides me, there is none else. He's talking in God's name. And I repeat, I am the first, I am the last, and besides me, there is none else. That gets rid of the pantheon. Okay, that we now get clarity. We now have only one. We have numerical monotheism and all the rest. But then he makes a second claim. To whom will you liken me that I should be compared? All right, now let's think about that. To whom will you liken me that I should be compared? This says God is comparable to nothing. Not the mightiest army in the world, not the strongest hurricane or earthquake. God, as I said at the outset, is, is in a class unique to God. There is nothing that resembles God. God is wholly unlike everything else. And this is what I've termed philosophical monotheism. Second Isaiah makes both claims. Now, if God is unlike anything else, if God cannot be compared to anything at all, then uh, think about what we're saying. That's why you can't make an image of God. Because once you make an image of God, you're comparing God. You make an image of God as a lion, or as a human being, or uh, as a lightning bolt, or uh, take your pick, uh, you would be comparing God to something on earth. And second Isaiah 
says, no, God is comparable to nothing at all. So uh, I am crediting second Isaiah with being the first monotheist. I wish I could tell you more about his life or his name. <laughs> I wish I could tell you where he lived, what he had for dinner or what uh, his likes in it. We just don't know. But these are the two claims, and they're there in the text as clear as can be. Uh, now, again, you could argue it takes all three traditions uh, time to develop the full implications of these claims. Uh, and uh, I, I'm certainly sympathetic with that. But I would say this is sort of the landmark. This is where somebody puts his foot down and says, from now on, this is what we have to hold. Do we know enough about the time period in which Second Isaiah might have been writing, and or if not about the individual, about the experiences of other Israelites well, that we, might have have led to this? Yeah, First month? Isaiah uh, is uh, writing before the uh, uh, the Babylonians uh, 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 conquered Jerusalem uh, in 586 BC. Uh, after the Babylonians conquer uh, uh, Jerusalem, uh, uh, destroy the temple, uh, Persia conquers Babylonia. And the great king of Persia, Cyrus, allows the Jews to go back and to rebuild the temple. So we get the second temple. Uh, second Isaiah is most likely a prophet of the restoration. He is most likely a prophet of the generation who was allowed to return. Uh, and uh, what he says, uh, in addition to his theological statements, uh, he tells the people, God is not angry with you anymore. You have paid whatever uh, a debt there was in terms of your sins before God. Uh, God has forgiven you. You can go back now and rebuild. Uh, we can start over again. It's very much a hopeful, uh, optimistic uh, 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 prophet. Um, and then we get the theology, and the theology is unlike anything, or let's put it this way, much clearer, much clearer, much more precise about the issue of God than anything that went before. Uh, before we have ambiguity, and I would say now we've got the two foundations, the two pillars upon which this doctrine rests. So is there, is there putting it in, again in its context, is there a, a something of a radicalness, a qualitative difference between what we see in 2nd Isaiah and, for example, some have compared uh, the development of biblical monotheism to, I think it was uh, the, the pharaoh Akhenaten and his his was an elevation of one deity in the Egyptian pantheon was it was it not I I don't know enough to to speak with expertise about that um, I mean look even in ancient Greece Zeus occupies a, a position on Mount Olympus uh, that uh, is superior to all the other they have to bend to the will of Zeus. Uh, is it monotheistic? Not really. Uh, let's keep in mind that Zeus has to bend to the will of the fates, so he's not uh, all-powerful. 
let's keep in mind that Apollo uh, once got the fates drunk, uh, so they're not all powerful. Uh, so I would say you don't, uh, certainly not in Greece, uh, it, it really isn't monotheism that I would call. Uh, the, the Egyptian case, I just don't know enough about, and I'm, I'm not sure we have enough record of what was actually stated to, to decide that one way or the other. Okay. How, how does the, uh, this, how do these statements in Second Isaiah, how is that then picked up and, and carried forward into uh, the Hebrew Bible and Israel's ongoing understanding of the nature of God. Well, you still, you still have the, the, the numerical claim from that point on is stands, uh, I would say. The problem, the second claim, the uniqueness of God is still fought over. Okay, and, be, and the reason for that is that you, you face a very serious problem. If you say that God is comparable to nothing, that's the second claim. Well, then what are you going to say? How do you describe? How do you describe something that's comparable to nothing at all? Okay, so uh, as things develop, I would say you have uh, a tradition, the rabbinic tradition, uh, starts to soft pedal this. And uh, they've got plenty of passages that are anthropomorphic uh, in rabbinic literature. Uh, God wearing clothes, uh, uh, God uh, suffering and going into exile with the people, uh, God experiencing emotions, God uh, having all kinds of, of attributes, physical attributes. In that sense, Summer is right. The tradition is not a clear-cut monotheistic. Um, along comes the philosophical tradition in Judaism, which starts around the 10th or 11th century and reaches its high point in Moses Maimonides, the 12th century. And uh, he uh, takes Second Isaiah's insight to its logical conclusion. And this is a conclusion that not everyone likes, and to this day is still controversial. I like it, uh, but okay, let me explain. He says that God is ineffable. No, this is Maimonides now. No human praise, no human description, no, uh, is adequate to the full glory and perfection of God. In other words, he says, uh, God is, uh, if you want to think of it this way, God is off the chart of anything uh, that we're or anything else is on. So um, he uh, ends his discussion uh, with the following claim, and this is where people have trouble with him. Uh, he quotes the 65th Psalm, and the 65th Psalm says, silence is praise to thee. Silence is praise to thee. Now, what, what, what does this mean? That God is so unique, so special, so unlike me or anything else on, 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 in the created order, that the best thing I can do is 
to approach God with a feeling of awe and a studied silence. Because any description I start to make will compare God to something down here. And the second we do that, we miss the point. Okay, that's a pretty strong claim to make. Uh, you can see why he would make it. He's followed, he quotes second Isaiah. He says he's giving you the full implications of second Isaiah. But uh, there are a lot of Jewish scholars, uh, uh, rabbis, uh, you know, uh, uh, practitioners who uh, would say, wait, this is just going too far. It's going way too far. What do you mean silence is praised? Uh, what about the prayer book? Uh, isn't that full of praise of God? Well, Maimonides would say, yes, it is, and you should read the prayer book, and you should read all of the praise that we uh, give to God, but you should then, in the last analysis, see that it falls short. It's still human categories. It's still our descriptions. It's, it's, it's still something that we uh, can grasp, and uh, we can get our head around. And the second that you say we can grasp it and get our head around it, Maimonides answers, then you don't have God. Because God is, is greater than anything we can get our head around. So this is still a highly controversial claim. And I would say that Maimonides is in the minority. Now, I'm with him, 100%. Uh, and uh, here I have to talk about I am a Jew. And uh, I'm comfortable with being in the minority. I have to tell you, it's a personal point. Uh, it's no longer theology or biblical criticism. But uh, the second that the majority of people agree with me, I get nervous. I get that something, something is, is not right. So if you tell me, even in my own tradition, that I have a minority voice, I'm very comfortable with that. Well, that, that is music to my ears because I am often a minority voice crying in the wilderness in my own religious tradition. So <laughs> I appreciate uh, where you're coming I, I from. I think Thomas Aquinas didn't get quite that far. Uh, in fact, at, at certain passages, he says he thinks uh, this would, if Maimonides would write, was right, this would leave the average person standing in church uh, confused and befuddled and and. Well, it does, and it would. I mean, Aquinas is right about that. And yet, uh, as I read Aquinas, uh, if you read him closely, I think he's actually closer to Maimonides than, than uh, he's often uh, characterized to be. Uh, not quite as extreme, but I think he is certainly sympathetic with uh, what Maimonides is trying to say. Well, I want to make application to the, the focus of this podcast, but before I do that, um, your article gives a, a summary of some of the important issues and the elements involved. It's multi-layered, it's complex, there's agreement and disagreement among scholars and rabbis and so on. Can, it's a tall order, but can you kind of summarize uh, the issue in that there is, in, in your view and the view of, of many others, there is a development in the Hebrew Bible, uh, starting at one place, uh, I don't know if we want to call it uh, henotheism or, or what have you, to monotheism. Can, can you just 
just summarize. Yeah, it. I mean, look, the you know, again, we don't know what Abraham's theology was. Uh, we don't even know if he had a theology, for heaven's sake. Uh, uh, when we get to Moses, uh, who's often too called the first one of the first monotheists, well. As I said, you look at the commandments that Moses gives us. Uh, he doesn't tell us why uh, we can't worship gods other than the God of Israel. Uh, he leaves that we can't, but he doesn't tell us why. So there's a big question mark there. And he doesn't tell us why we can't make and worship an image of God. He leaves that completely open. So we're not altogether sure what his theology was. Again, if he even had a well-worked, uh, well-worked-out theology. So um, the you have passages in the Torah that say people saw God, and then you have passage of Deuteronomy at the end of the Torah that says no, they didn't. Uh, so it's, the text itself is not completely clear. This may represent uh, uh, different authors and uh, uh, different groups, uh, uh, the way they saw things. But uh, we, do, we don't uh, have a clear-cut doctrine at the end of the Torah. As I said, even first Isaiah says he saw God and God had a robe and a left side and a right side and angels up on top. Uh, is that monotheistic? Uh, doesn't sound like that to me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you if you look at everything there before Second Isaiah, uh, the the return uh, to, to to Jerusalem uh, under Cyrus, uh, it, it's the sort of thing that keeps scholars in business. Because of the inconsistencies, the ambiguities, uh, take it this way, take it that way. Uh, it keeps people like me in business uh, commenting on this. And so for the average person, if you pick it up and read it and say, well, now where do we stand? The answer is we don't know. It's still debatable. Uh, now, as I said, once the philosophic tradition gets going, you get precision, but you get the extreme version of what monotheism means. And you've always had uh, in Judaism and in Christianity and in Islam an anti-philosophical uh, counter movement, uh, uh, claiming that the philosophers uh, basically don't have it right. Uh, this is a, a question of simple faith. We don't need all this philosophical uh, analysis and precision. Okay, so all three traditions, uh, I would say that you still, uh, we're, we still have room, ample room for disagreement over what monotheism is really about. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in a way, let me try to put an optimistic spin on it, if I can, okay? Religion isn't geometry. It, it shouldn't read like a geometry. You know, in a, if you read Euclid, there's no ambiguity. You know exactly what you've got. You have absolute demonstrations of every theorem. 
if you uh, don't, uh, uh, if you disagree with the conclusions, because you don't understand, there is no real room for debate, disagreement, shades of ambiguity, uh, etc. I don't think religion works that way, and I don't think it should work that way, okay? There should be room for different traditions, even within uh, a single faith. There should be a a philosophical tradition, an anti-philosophical tradition. There should be a historical tradition. There should be a literary tradition. Uh, so the way I see it, if you want to make sense of the Bible, uh, um, I see a table <laughs> with maybe six, eight, ten, twelve people representing different uh, disciplines or different historical epics sitting around uh, talking about uh, these texts. And they aren't always going to agree and they shouldn't always agree. Uh, uh, so, uh, as I said, I'm willing to live with disagreement and I'm willing to live with opponents. And, uh, sometimes I learn from them. Sometimes I think they're crazy, but okay. Um, uh, uh, religion isn't cut and dried and it, and it shouldn't be. I think it would be a big mistake to reduce it to something like geometry. Well, I am very comfortable with that, and that's part of what we try to do this podcast. Unfortunately, many conservative Christians like don't like a whole lot of ambiguity, tension, inconsistency. We like the black and white, and it's good to hear that it, it's okay, and the biblical text itself includes this. And in order to understand it, we need to bring diverse approaches to it. All right, now, let's play in your ballpark for a minute, okay? We're let's play in your ballpark. How about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus comes and says, I've come to fulfill the law. Okay. I've come to fulfill the law. And uh, so I raise the question, did he mean, A, I've now fulfilled it and therefore you don't have to, which based on what he says, you could read it that way. Or did he mean, uh, I fulfilled it, and you now have to follow me. I've shown you what complete fulfillment of the law looks like, uh, and therefore uh, you have to do your best uh, uh, to, uh, to emulate what I've done. Which one did he mean? On the basis of the speech alone, I don't see how you, I I read it in Greek, I read it in the original. So uh, in the, uh, the uh, just if you look at the speech and even, how do you decide what he meant? Okay. And this was a, a sermon, this was not given to professional scholars or theologians, this was given to, to regular people. Uh, and yet, uh, when we go back over it centuries later and read it, you could take it Either way, it would make a big difference to how you understand Christianity, depending on which of these interpretations you want to hold. Uh, as I said, either of them can be supported. Yeah, I, I, I no argument here for me. <laughs> uh, now, if he comes back 
uh, we can ask, okay, what exactly could you give us a little more clarification on how we should understand the Sermon on the Mount? But uh, as a, that hasn't happened yet. And just on the basis of the text, we don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, one closing comment for me or thought for me and if you oh, if you have some comment uh one way or the other that'd be great if not that's okay too the, the reason why this is uh two reasons why this is of such interest i think it should be to others in the christian tradition is one we need to understand the biblical text the hebrew bible better and maybe our our very black and white understanding the bible is monotheistic from the very beginning uh maybe that needs to be rethought just to understand our own tradition to understand judaism better and secondly we're using the biblical text to bring disagreement and critique to other religious traditions that aren't monotheistic or at least not in the sense that we think they should be and maybe our arguments could be better um so I think that we have good reason, great motiva motivation to understand the biblical text better, not only for our own understanding, but also as we relate to others and other religious traditions. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I th you and I apparently are cut from the same cloth here, <laughs> how we view uh, that we need to understand that the uh, the sacred literature of both the traditions uh, leaves room for interpretation, further study, questioning. These are not bad things. They're good things uh, to uh, look at these texts. Uh, and, and by a critical mind, I, I, I don't mean trying to disprove it or something. What I mean is uh, uh, trying to uh, go through the uh, scholarly uh, literature and trying to see what alternatives there are and what choices we have to make for ourselves. This is all to the good. This is all to the good. You, when you read these texts, it's they're not cut and dried. Uh, it's not like picking up the newspaper and reading about a murder investigation where you get complete literal statements, factual statements, one, one, two, three, four, down the line. They don't read that way. They shouldn't read that way. They reflect the historical climate in which they were written. They have literary devices. They make theological claims. Uh, so the, the thing here, when you read sacred literature, open your mind. Open your mind to what it's trying to tell you. Uh, I try not to criticize other traditions. There are uh, religions that are not monotheistic. Uh, it's not me. I, I'm not a, a follower, but uh, I don't like to uh, pass judgment on uh, the rituals or the literature traditions of, of faiths uh, uh, outside uh, uh, my own, or even outside the Western tradition. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have enough trouble within the Western tradition, so uh, let, let's keep it there. That's very true. Dr. Seaskin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation and responding positively to uh, an email inquiry from somebody you didn't know out of the blue and being willing to come on the podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, this was a fun time. I, I'm, I uh, thank you for inviting me. 
this was a nice way to spend the afternoon. Well, again, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. Uh, please look to the program notes for more of the bio and links to the books uh, by my guest today, as well as some links to some uh, other places you can go and uh, continue to explore this particular topic. I would like to thank everybody for listening and viewing until the next episode of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast.